0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast, hosted by the York Music Psychology Group, and dedicated to exploring the fascinating fields of music psychology, music cognition, systematic and empirical musicology. My name is Dr Mimi O'Neill and I'm thrilled to welcome you or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field and also to make these exciting topics more accessible to non-specialist audiences. So whether you are a researcher, a student, a musician, a music lover, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. We'll feature interviews with experts in the field who are sharing their latest research findings and providing practical insights into how the new knowledge created can be applied. Our guest today is Scott Bannister, currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Leeds, working on a cadenza project. This project aims to develop signal processing approaches to improve the experience of music for listeners with hearing loss. Scott completed his PhD in 2020 at Durham University, investigating musical chills such as goosebumps, shivers, and tingling sensations. His main research interests include music and emotion, empathy social cognition psychophysiology well-being and open science. Well hello and welcome to the Pom Pod and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. I'd like to start with a bit of a throwback and ask you about your work on musical chills. Um we've not had anyone on the podcast actually who's really talked about them before, but I think it's a real or I think it's an experience that, that lots of listeners will recognise. Um, for those who have not come across them before, can you give us an overview of what you mean by musical chills and, and perhaps some of your work in the area?
1: Sure. Um, really what I mean by musical chills, and, and this is really an aggregation of, 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 of various strands of research. Chills, um, you might think of them as a kind of subjective, emotional experience that are accompanied by Goosebumps or goose flesh, shivers down the spine, and maybe some tingling sensations as well. Um, and these these tend to be um, quite strong emotional experiences in response to music. They they happen not just with music, but with with all kinds of engagements with with films, images, um, poetry as well, and and I imagine many other non-aesthetic, if you like, circumstances as well. Um. It's an experience that I have quite often with music, which is maybe where my motivation came from for the research. And I suspect that many people, as you've already said, Mimi, they they kind of relate intuitively to to the experience, even without this definition I've I've given you. People um, have an int- intuitive sense as to what we might mean potentially by something like chills. Um, so it's something I've had quite a bit with music, and and really when I started research. And and a lot of the work I did on chills was during my PhD work. That was the focus. At that point, we we didn't really have much of a sense as to the broader characteristics of the experience. So um, in terms of what emotions people report when they experience chills or when they reflect on a chills experience, so what, what are the kind of emotional qualities of the experience or response? Um, we had some sense as to, kind of what might work in music when it comes to chills and and, and the elicitation of that response but we were we were looking at, starting to look a little bit more broadly at that um and also just some of the listening contexts and and it's worth mentioning I guess at that point that a lot of the work I've um carried out is really focused on the listener perspective rather than any other kinds of musical engagements um that people may be involved in it's very much a kind of uh just, just if you like, one-to-one listening to to music when when you're alone. It's really those kinds of circumstances that I was focused on. A main driver of my work was trying to actually get people into labs, uh, run some experiments and try and manipulate the chills. And upon reflection, what I realized I was doing was um, attempting to destroy chills and suppress chills experiences rather than amplify them. Anyway, that was the major um, advance that we were trying to accomplish there, really just some preliminary work if you like at testing chills can we manipulate them in any consistent way and we did this by taking some pieces of music that we knew from survey work were quite effective broadly speaking they of course won't be effective for everyone um and just kind of manipulating uh, or taking out structures in the music such as crescendos for example that may be the eliciting moments and just seeing what happens um we also did this with, with if you like psychoacoustic parameters or properties of the sound itself, rather than explicitly just the music, the actual sound qualities. And we we've done some manipulation work um, on things like loudness, actually, just to see see, see what happens there as well. Um, and just to kind of round off this point, the work that I was doing really morphed from this experimental jump into manipulating chills to actually thinking that when we talk about musical chills, we don't necessarily talk about one singular unified experience. Actually, I think there is at least theoretical evidence and maybe some empirical evidence as well, or, or evidence some data we've collected in in these studies to suggest that not all chills are the same. In fact, we may be able to distinguish my musical chills from someone else's or my musical chills from another experience of music, musical chills that I've had. Um, in terms of what causes them, what the underlying processes are, um, and various other characteristics of the experience as well. So, I think that that really summarizes the trajectory, if you like, of what I've been thinking about and and some of the work that I've done. There are studies that show stronger relationships between chills and particular structural elements of the music, if you like. And and, and an example that I've already referred to in passing is. Uh, a crescendo or some 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 ramp up in amplitude or loudness in a piece of music other examples can include the human voice the human singing voice particular lyrics in 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 songs not necessarily instrumental music but a lot of popular music as well and and, and the lyrics that are involved there there are kind of links between chills and harmonic progressions in music in particular new or unprepared or unexpected if you like changes in harmony in the music and in some survey work that i'd done various participants kind of described the moment in the music that gave them chills and and i'm not making any claim that this was really prevalent in the in the sample of participants but it was worth it was quite interesting to me they describe moments of musical union uh, and musical unity between performers or between musical elements, almost a sense where everything finally kind of comes together as one. And this is quite interesting language. We don't know exactly what that is in the music, but I, I think it's really interesting the way you actually ask people to, to just describe the moments rather than us making these links to the structure, and, and you find some quite interesting things.
0: Yeah, really great. And so is there a track or... Or a musical moment for you that is most likely to induce chills?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great, great question. Um I think I have one piece which is incredibly consistent and incredibly intense as an experience. And that's um, a song called Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen. Um so I can't really explain why I value this piece of music so highly. And the whole the whole album that it's off, which is kind of born to run by bruce springsteen one of his most famous and and i'm not an avid bruce springsteen listener but there's something about that album that means something intangible i can't quite describe it but um yeah there's this 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 song jungle land there's it's, it's kind of nine minutes so it really has a bit of scope to explore different areas um but there's a there's there's a moment in the middle of the the piece which is a Quite extended saxophone solo, um, accompanied by a change in harmony and key in the whole piece. So there's a real, a real transition. Um, and I must say, every time I, I hear that um, saxophone solo, it's 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 incredibly intense experience. I, I kind of you know tears. I'm almost laughing to stop from from sobbing. It's it's this really strange, very physical experience that also involves chills as well. There's nothing sad about it. It's just. It's hard, hard to explain. I can't. I can't have it on in the car. Let's put it that way. When I'm when I'm when I'm driving, I
0: tried that once. I don't know why. Um, I wouldn't try it again. <laughs> it's not just not safe. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily. There doesn't have to be a focused listening. It could just be in your environment, or you do have to sort of be attending to the music specifically. That that's a good
1: good question. I'm not really sure the answer to that. I think part of the issue with that song is that if it comes on for me. It demands attention. So I don't think it can be on in the background as far as my kind of listening focus goes. I don't think whatever it is about the way I'm thinking or processing that music in particular, I guess my brain, or I, I kind of find it always weird to refer to my brain as something separate. But anyway, it almost doesn't let you re- relegate it to the background. I think if I just stuck it on, I mean, I stick the album on when I, you know, if I was driving the car, for example, and then I kind of don't I kind of lack the foresight in realizing well that is on on there somewhere. <laughs> but I think it's 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 a really good question. I, I'm not, not, not sure broadly what the answer to that is. Um but certainly from my experience with this piece, I don't think it's ever background music. It's just not really um, possible.
0: Yeah, great. Well I think we're all gonna go and try it with that with that track now and see if it's Well, go, go and have a listen. Um
1: it's such a strange piece. I feel I feel quite fortunate to have it actually, mm. um, because I can't explain to anyone why I, you know, why it has that effect on me. I've kind of looked out really. It's just just fortunate. Um, but uh, yeah, feel free for everyone to go and have a listen. But um, if you don't share the feelings, don't don't tell me because I'll I'll, I'll be too too uh, distraught. <laughs> to <destroy. laughs>
0: Noted. No problem. Um, And you're also working, I guess, more recently on making these experiences, but just generally making music uh, more accessible to those specifically with hearing loss. Um, Can you talk us through some of the challenges that this community faces in terms of music engagement and how the project that you're working with seeks to address those?
1: Sure. Ultimately, people with hearing loss. I mean, hearing loss is an incredibly diverse um, uh, set of uh, circumstances, if you like. I mean, I mean, there's no single of hearing loss everyone's hearing loss is totally different it's caused by different things it happens in different parts of the the, the, the kind of uh, audio processing chain if you like as well um so there are many different perceptual problems that that listeners and, and 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 again worth mentioning that this work with those with hearing loss is really focusing on listening for now um but they that there are a lot of different issues that that people experience. For example, they 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 lose audibility in certain frequencies um in 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 the frequency range of of musical sound. Um, there's also at times less separation between different frequency bands. So what this can lead to is sounds blending together and not being separable in 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 such an easy way. Conceptually, and this really leads to other issues around source separation as well, and being able to pick out individual um, lines in the music or instruments and and textures. Um, some people have have problems with pitch distortion, where pitch no longer sounds um, correct or, or as it used to. There's there's almost in some cases there's a kind of mistuning of pitch that they hear. Um, and also there are there are issues with with things like excessive. Loudness as well. People might think of hearing loss, of course, as kind of sounds needing to be louder to be to be audible. Um, which, which is which is often the case. But hearing loss means you you work in a smaller dynamic range. So actually sounds need to be quite a bit louder to be heard in the first place. But actually that threshold for excessive loudness is fixed. It remains kind of the same. So 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 people um are experiencing um, excessive loudness or issues related to loudness. And these are just some of the issues. Um, And the the work that I'm involved in at the moment on the Cadenza project, ultimately, um, a large um, component of this work is a series of machine learning challenges which aim to ultimately develop... Um, signal processing strategies that will improve the quality of music listening experiences for people with a hearing loss. A lot of the work that I've done on the project so far has actually been focused on trying to understand what it is that people with hearing loss want from music. You know, what 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 are the, the priorities? What are the perceptual experiences of these music listeners? Um, and really, before we have a really a thorough understanding of those elements only then can we really start to to have something to aim towards if you like in terms of the machine learning challenges and and maybe a bit of background for these challenges it's a relatively contemporary approach to research but it's it's in its basic form it's it's presenting a a a scenario a challenge if you like that you invite people in the research community or outside it is it's if you have the skills it's 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 a, it's a challenge that you can engage with and, and really your task is to, for example, improve the audio quality um, in relation to a certain measurement or metric that, that might be involved in the challenge. So that, that project work is it's not necessarily just focus focused on hearing aids, which is, is, is a really common aid to um, to hearing, but also to music listening as well. But it's, it's also interested in exploring consumer devices as well. And, and in particular, looking at what we call object-based audio, where if we take music as an example, if we have access to the actual individual audio stems of the recording, so we can actually turn the guitar up or down or the the drums or the vocal? Can we harness that technology, which will become more common as the years go by, to kind of remix things on the consumer device and remix things, for example, on the radio rather than signal processing in the hearing aids? So there's a few different um, perspectives to it, but maybe that's, um, yeah, just to round that point off.
0: That's really interesting. And actually, I think that there's a whole range of people that would enjoy that beyond those who it would help in terms of accessing music. Exactly. Um so is there a sort of an end goal for this project? What what do you and the team sort of hope to achieve?
1: I think I think obviously the the the, the primary motivation of the work is is to improve quality of the music of music engagements for for people with a hearing loss. That's that's the the, the overarching motivation and goal of of the project i think th- these are incredibly complex um challenges and you know hear hearing aids some hearing aids at least have settings or programs specific to music um, we're not necessarily always sure what exactly those hearing aids do in those settings but the the idea is that they're specific to music and they're meant to improve the quality of listening to music but although hearing aids do help and it's worth stressing that um the uh, the effectiveness is 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 really quite mixed and and i think that's that really just reflects just how complex it is when we take any individual with a, with a completely unique hearing profile and even even people who may, maybe don't have a hearing loss we all have our own you know completely unique hearing profiles so ultimately i think we we in, in terms of breaking that project down into 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 some some achievable aims, because I think the improving the quality of music engagements is just ongoing motivation. It's something we need to continue to do for many years. Um, but I think as I've alluded to, we really want to develop that understanding as to what people with hearing loss want from their music listening engagements. What is good or improved audio quality um, when it comes to their engagements. Um, we also want to be developing, through these machine learning challenges, potential audio processing strategies that can improve audio quality, which may have the potential for implementation in, in hearing aids and potentially consumer devices as well. So there's, there's trickle down from the outputs of the project to those areas. And another interesting aim of the work is actually when the project ends, these machine learning challenges should continue. So... There's a community building exercise, which is a key output and aim of this research that when the project ends and there's an established community of researchers or or academics or or otherwise who are motivated um, to continue with these machine learning challenges that focus on music listening uh, and, and hearing loss. So I think that's one of the key aspects that we develop that community and it continues onwards after the end of the project.
0: I mean, those are, they are great goals, it's really, really laudable and I wish you the very best of luck with it. As a slight gear shift, as well as all of that that we've already talked about, you're also a really big champion of open science. Can you explain a bit about how we should sort of understand that term and, and what the benefits of it are?
1: Open science or, or open research is really it's really just about making all aspects of, of the research that we perform as open and as tr- transparent and as accessible. As possible. That's my baseline understanding of, of of open research, and that refers not only to making sure our outputs are accessible, as as if you like open access publications, as an example. And it's not just about making any research data we collect openly accessible and available for reanalysis for example it's also about transparency at all other stages of the research process so the development of the hypotheses or development of the research questions and the motivations for carrying our research so who are we as researchers what is our positionality i think that's important um it's also about making the methods completely transparent and open to the point that if i read something that you've done mimi then i can go ahead and replicate it um, exactly. And and that's the gold standard for, for transparency and methodology. It's about making any research tools that we've used openly accessible as well. Um, so it's really all stages of the research process. Um, and I think a lot of emphasis goes into research data and research outputs, but it's really about transparency at all stages of the research process as well. So that would be a kind of brief summary of my... Understanding of the priorities of open research, if you like.
0: That's really that's really helpful. Um, am I supposed to play Seppel's advocate for a second? If the aim is to allow people to replicate a study, do you think that this is gonna uh, sort of motivate this wave of replication, or is that just not a realistic a realistic goal? Because so many people want to extend knowledge rather than replicate it.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's one of the really key challenges, and I think. There's there's a lot of writing already on research research culture, if you like, and research infrastructure. And as as you say, it's not just that we want to extend knowledge, but actually we're motivated and incentivized. I think a lot of the time to to, to do so, um, and to to, to to generate something novel as opposed to um, the important, really crucial scientific process of replicating and verifying existing research so it's really a, a kind of challenging aspect that i don't think there's any single or really easy solution to if you like shifting a little bit of prior priority to to replication work of research i don't necessarily have an idea as to what the solution will be but i think it, it, it comes down to the broader environments cultures and systems that that, that we operate in mm. and and they're incredibly kind of complex really so yeah. Yes,
0: for sure. I feel like the word that you're circling and trying to avoid is funding. That the projects that get well, funded.
1: that's yeah.
0: So yeah. maybe, maybe this is a call to action for funders to understand the value of replication. Indeed. Um, just one more quick question on open research, open science. Do you think there's a difference in the way that researchers who are using qualitative versus quantitative methods will approach open science?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a really important question. Um, not just at the level of research methodology but also research disciplines as well now open research is this and I and as, as you've said I I I'm I have a really positive perspective um on open research but that's partly because it aligns really nicely with a, with a, a, the the kind of work that I do so so a lot of language around open research I, my my feeling around the language is that it's it, there's an implicit bias there towards basic science research, but there are many disciplines of, of work, and it's beyond qualitative or quantitative, and I will come back to that point as well, where aspects of replication, verification, protocols, data, publications, there are disciplines where these are not necessarily um, terms that, that are immediately applicable or even relevant for the research that they're doing um and i think there is a bit of an issue in that even when we talk about open science as opposed to uh, as opposed to open research and they're used interchangeably um i think there's 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 quite a lot of work to be done to explore what open research means to people who are not necessarily working in a paradigm which is experimental hypothesis driven work and 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 a lot of research is not that kind of work and 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 actually Coming on to qualitative versus quantitative, a lot of qualitative work is not like this, that it's not hypothesis testing. In a lot of ways, it's hypothesis generation a lot of the time. And there are a lot of complexities, not necessarily unique to qualitative research, but maybe they are emphasised. For example, with research data, the ethical considerations of, of making data which may have been collected in focus groups or interviews or observations or otherwise making that kind of data publicly available may involve different risks compared to an experiment which is ultimately the data be- become numbers a lot of the time Um so there are issues there that need to be considered with research data but I think there are more I mean, th- those issues are, are prevalent in any any research. Ethics is obviously this integral dimension of research at all aspects and all stages of the process. Um, but there are actually some fundamental considerations with qualitative work as well. One one open research, one practice, if you like, of open research, for example, is kind of pre-registration of of, of studies, and and ultimately this is this is a way of making clear. What the 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 kind of aims, the design, and the analysis plan, and how many participants are involved, finalizing all of those details and making them available um, before the actual study is performed. And I think you know this this was in res- maybe in response to or, or trying to address questionable research practices that can happen um, innocently, but can also happen not so innocently, where you you kind of collect data and then you analyse and you, you you kind of hypothesise after testing and all, all, all these kinds of aspects. But a lot of that doesn't necessarily apply directly to qualitative research a lot of the time. So I think there are questions not just about research data, which is an obvious one, but there are questions about other practices like pre-registration. So what is the purpose of a pre-registration uh, for qualitative research? If in quantitative experimental research, it's there to kind of make the hypotheses clear before data collection, and then the data are, an, are analyzed in specific relation to those hypotheses beforehand. What's the analogy, if you like, for for, for qualitative research? I, I don't sit here and necessarily have the answer. I think you, you raise a really good point that even between methodologies, uh, and I've alluded to disciplines as well, but it's a complex, really complex picture um, and there are people like me who say open science or open research is is fantastic. It's it's daunting. There, there are a lot of practices and it's about just doing what you can in your in your research process. Um but I think there are considerable discussion points and complexities with all kinds of research. Every, every project is unique and there are you know collaborations with external partners and and you know, research projects can be quite um complex beasts. So Open research is not always, I guess, straightforward, if you like.
0: Yeah, sure. And I guess the conversation is about how do we use it to empower researchers and not become a barrier for them doing it. We run alongside an online speaker series in which people working loosely in the field of music psychology and cognition present their work and start a conversation. These take place at 2.30 on Fridays and are totally free and accessible to all. You can find the joining instructions on the Music Cognition Matters website, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. As well as chatting to me for the podcast today, Scott presented as part of the speaker series last Friday. Could you give us an overview of what you covered? Of course.
1: Um, really, as part of that talk, I introduced some ongoing work, which is focusing on music listening experiences where where the music itself is behaving as some kind of social agent, and that might sound to, to any listeners, I guess, to be potentially unusual or, or, or counterintuitive. But it's this idea that when we listen to music and, and really when I'm thinking about listening here again, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, maybe we're sat in our bedroom and just, just we're alone and we're listening to the music and they are the two active components in, in the engagement there's there's a lot of evidence in music psychology research and 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 a lot of it comes from work on how we as listeners use music to regulate our emotions and regulate our moods as well i'm particularly interested more so as every year goes by i'm really interested in how the language that people use to talk about their their experiences and across these studies on mood regulation you hear that music is is something that can provide company it can provide solace It can provide consolation, comfort, or support, especially when the listener is experiencing something like sadness. So the music is able to to give something to the listener, which has a flavor of social interaction, at least from my perspective. It can work the other way. Listeners can perceive music as expressing personas, characters, narratives. Listeners, I think, and I believe can also feel empathy for the music in some way. And it's and there was recent work um, a couple of years ago which actually sparked this um, way of thinking, which was um, by Katerina Schaefer and Thomas Erola, and they looked at music behaving as a social surrogate. Um, in essence, listeners using music to re- temporarily replace, if you like, real social interaction Um and engagement and i suspect it's a similar thing that maybe for, for, for people who've maybe been to university or, or or of course just left home for for whatever reason you know people stick photos of family and friends all over the wall and it's this kind of social almost this social surrogate for in absence of the real thing we we do things to try and have some experience of that interaction so this really sparked uh, my interest in this 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 work and um what i spoke about uh, uh, in in the session was some ongoing exploratory investigation that I that I've done with some colleagues um at the university of leeds um really just exploring whether uh music listeners um can talk about their experiences in this way because it does even as I'm talking about it now it's quite a difficult thing to express and potentially not easily tangible in in when people are reflecting on their listening experiences so we we developed a very very broad um, and preliminary framework of these potential what we call pseudo social music listening experiences trying to reflect um, a sense of social interaction with something that is not necessarily an actual person in itself but it could be a social interaction with just the music or something abstract like this um, so anyway it's a, it's a term we, we've been using so far and we were just exploring and providing ex- possible examples to participants of this kind of experience to see whether they resonate with them whether they can relate with them and also talk to us about a similar experience that they've had with the music and when we and we primed listeners in this way because we 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 were not sure just how easy this would be if we just asked them to talk about, their music listening engagements, where music is a social agent or or, or some some kind of social um, object. So, any anyway, what what we what you do find is that people are very um, people feel the, that these kind of primes or vignettes, as we we call them, that they're, they're particularly relatable. They're, they're they're relevant for their experience, and once they uh, once you've given them that way in in of thinking about these experiences, you then. Let them off the leash, if you like, and say, "Okay, tell us about similar experiences you've had." And then, then they're particularly open, and and it seems quite intuitive in the way in the way they talk about these things. So, these pseudo-social music listening experiences, they 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 often involve quite um, a, a, a prominent emotional aspect, as a lot of music listening engagements do, but not all. What's interesting about these experiences over the last few years? I've noticed that they they correspond to a well-known concept in communication and media studies called parasocial interaction. And this is essentially um, characterised as a symbolic one-way social interaction between an audience member, if you like, and that's often how it's framed in media studies um, or media user. So really it's, a, it's a one-way interaction between themselves and a character or a person often depicted through television a lot of this work focuses on television so news anchors re- relevant uh, uh should i say not relevant but um frequently appearing if you like um news anchors or broadcasters presenters but also fictional characters as well whether that's in in soap operas in this in this country or uh or other dramas as as, as well and this one-way element of that is that the whoever we're socially interacting with they don't really know we exist you know you know there's no reciprocal interaction going on there but it's the illusion of it actually and 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 it's felt that way in some cases for, for people who have these parasocial interactions now these are just at least from my perspective my intuition is that they are extensions of real social interaction there's 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 not necessarily anything unusual about this and Actually, when framed in that way, listeners may get a sense that they do this with t- television. I mean, even, even an adored character who might die in, in, a, in a drama or something elicits these kinds of emotional experiences in them. And it may be related to these one way social interactions we have with them. Um, so that might be a more intuitive framing, but I think then they're, they're kind of normal extensions of real social interaction. So I'm especially interested in firstly how parasocial interaction as a well studied concept in other fields of work, how it applies um, to music listening experiences and how, to what extent it characterises these music listening experiences sufficiently but I'm also interested in the potential differences because television is not necessarily abstract in most cases in the same way that instrumental music might be Um, and it's worth saying that these social interactions we might have with music when listening are not restricted to music with human singers um, or lyrics even. It, It can totally, I believe it can totally happen with instrumental music and that's what participants have told us as well. So I'm especially interested in whether listeners can have parasocial interactions with the music itself in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of high level of abstraction. And if they do experience these parasocial interactions, I guess the question is kind of how, um, what is it that they're interacting with? Um, there was a really interesting uh, theoretical paper from David Huron and Janov Woskowski on compassion, feeling compassion for sad music as a way of explaining why we enjoy it. And one of the key questions that came up in that paper is, compassion for what? What is it we're feeling compassion for? And I think there's a similar question that if we find, and this is some ongoing work that I'm involved in now, if we find that people do experience parasocial interactions with music, what are they interacting with? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, And I guess all of that is a really rambling um, summary of, the main uh, pieces of work and theoretical ideas that I spoke about.
0: Great, thank you very much. And as I said, if you want to join us for the talks on Friday afternoons, then you can find the joining instructions on our website, www.mus-cog-matters.glitch.me. Invite your colleagues, your students, your friends, your family, anyone who you think would be interested. We have covered uh, a lot already, um, but I'm always really interested to know what else people are working on. Are there any other projects or any other research that we can look forward to hearing more about in the future? Good question.
1: Firstly, just in in relation to the the, the talk I gave, I think, you know, I'm currently um, working particularly on this parasocial interaction concepts and really starting to I think, at least, perform one of the first kind of explorations of how that concept applies to music listening. So I won't talk too much more about that. But that's one of the key um, bits of future work or ongoing projects that I'm um, prioritising. It's worth mentioning, I guess, in relation to some of my previous Chills work that I've not abandoned that area of research totally. Um <laughs> I think there's some theoretical work that I'm developing in relation to distinct musical chills experiences, and just just fleshing out some of those theoretical ideas. And um, they have limited direct evidence, so there's no, there would be no claims around this theoretical framework, um, no strong claims. But I, I hope that when it's developed and potentially it's 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 accessible to readers. I'm also involved in some work at the moment, which is looking at a, a corpus of musical chills songs, and actually running running a, uh, an analysis of, of the lyrical content of these these songs where they have lyrics. Um, I don't think this has really been looked at in chills research before. We focused a lot about on uh, we focused a lot on the musical structures, but less so on lyrics. And I think lyrics are a crucial component of a lot of music that we engage with nowadays uh, especially in the uk um another bit of work on chills is um we're actually i'm working with a colleague at the university of leeds now uh on chills during music performance so if there's any performers of music um who have been listening to this discussion and they think hang on a second um chills are not restricted to to kind of music listening i've had these whilst performing um, a piece of music then good news um this is exactly what we're looking into and um there are various reasons theoretically that I think um at least as to why we should expect music performance context especially ensemble performance um I think we would expect chills to happen um quite often in those circumstances these chills experiences they're linked to kind of social bonding I think and that's that's one of my intuitions and that there are studies and, in, and we have we have data to suggest that the chills are indicative of kind of social bonding experiences. And I think these are happening in an ensemble music performance. So that's something that I hope people will see relatively soon. Um, and I guess the, um, the, the final thing in, in relation to what we've talked about already is that um, myself and a team of researchers at the University of Leeds Again, um, we are currently involved in a replication effort. So, we are we are taking a study on emotions, um, uh, felt and perceived emotions in response to music, and the relationship between those two aspects of the experience. Uh, we're we're taking a study that's focused on that area of research, and we are currently in the process of 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 replicating that work as well. So so there's. It's a lot of chills work and a lot of kind of open research-motivated work as well.
0: Sounds great. And we're going to have to keep an eye open for all of that as it comes out. (laughs) Um, My final question, you'll know this probably by now, that I ask all guests is what are the most interesting questions, aside from those you're currently seeking to answer in your research, what are the most interesting questions that haven't yet been answered in terms of music psychology?
1: I think one of the most interesting... (laughs) is it is it a question I guess so i I, th- I think I have a particular interest in music and emotion you might get that sense from, from everything I've talked about so far and and that's that's ultimately where my interests lie but I guess one of my one of the questions that I think is outstanding in music psychology is how how we go about measuring or trying to capture emotional experiences with music. There's been a lot of excellent work in the field in developing measurement tools or, or, or approaches to capturing emotion and emotions are so difficult to capture. But I'd be really interested in exploring further some contemporary perspectives on emotion more broadly and and I, i'm thinking about i mean the, these these perspectives have been around for for, for a while but i think that the interest in them is accelerating in music psychology research as well but different theoretical accounts of emotion that go beyond emotions as these categories of experience that we can just provide ratings for or circle if they apply to us i, I just get the general sense that as with all measurements in in research, we 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 lose something about the experience, um, and I, and and as I've alluded to multiple times, I think there's some real power in 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 language and the way people talk about emotions. I think this this aligns with, if you like, constructionist accounts of of, of emotion more broadly. Whether that's kind of psychological construction or even further the kind of social construction of emotion and there's some really nice papers coming out in music psychology that situate those accounts in relation to music specifically which uh, they're really kind of inspirational and that's all quite fluffy i realize i'm I'm not sat here with with any direct way forward or or suggestions for what we should be doing there yet but i think that's what's most interesting to me The, the 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 complexity around how we capture uh, these these musical experiences in in research settings, knowing that it will never, ever, you know, it'll never be perfect. We'll never really fully capture them. But just thinking quite critically about the tools we're using and the, the, the perspectives we have on emotional experience.
0: It's okay not to have the answer, I guess, to the questions we're asking. Um, Scott, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all that work with me. We really enjoyed your music Cognition Matters presentation um, and look forward to to keeping up with this research as it progresses. Thanks for listening and I hope to welcome you back for our next episode. This episode was produced by Ben Forsdick and supported by the University of York Enhancing Research Culture Fund.